Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts one more time if we can as we just come before God's word together. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Once again, we recognize that your word is living and powerful. Lord, this isn't just uh, an ancient book with some truth. This is the word of the God who created all things to his creation. And so, Lord, as we come humbly now before your word, help us to be willing to submit to it. So, Lord, to listen to the things that you have for us. And, Lord, to be excited about the promises that you have for us. Lord, just do a work in our lives this morning. Just draw us closer to you, that we would grow in knowledge and grace. We just give you this time now, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the promises of God. Now, I've mentioned this, I think, before, but uh, I believe it was Don McClure that was speaking once uh, on this very subject, the promises of God. And after he'd finished about an hour uh, session just going through this subject, a lady came up to him afterwards um, and started pouring out all the problems in her life, all the issues that she was facing and challenges and so on. And, and Don was getting increasingly more frustrated with this lady. Um, and eventually he just kind of, uh, kind of interrupted her and just said, Lady, what do you do with the promises of God? And she looked back at him and said, I underline them in blue. <laughs> Sometimes we reduce God's promises to that. It becomes something that we know in our heads, but do we really understand them and do they impact us uh, from a heart point of view and the way that we live our lives? So, um, as I say, this is a subject that um, um, is dear to my heart uh, for a number of reasons. I just, just want to go through this morning uh, and we're, we're just going to lay a foundation this morning and next week... Uh, we'll see how we get on, uh, how the Lord leads us. Uh, we're going to start to look through Scripture at some of these wonderful promises. Uh, let's first turn to Second Peter. Second um, Peter uh, chapter 1 is where we're going to look at the first four verses, really give us kind of a springboard for this uh, topic. And we just read the introduction there um, of Second Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. To them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. There's a great statement just as an opener there. You know, this like precious faith that he speaks of, the, the faith that Peter had, we've obtained the same faith, the same life that we've been given, uh, which we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Verse 2 says, grace and peace be multiplied. We've said before, those are the kind of two twins we see in the New Testament so frequently together. Grace and peace. And of course, you always find peace coming after grace. Uh, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So here Peter speaks of these exceeding great and precious promises that have been given to us. And again, this is according to God's divine power. He's given to us all things, that pertain to life. So we've been given by his grace everything that we possibly need. And again, part of the result of this we see there um, through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory, now speaking of something that is yet to come, and virtue. 
which is speaking very much of the here and now, the way we live our lives. And we start to see that the promises of God are not just something that's a, a nice kind of comforting thing. There's, there's a real purpose in God giving us the promises that we have in his word. So we're going to just break it down and just have a look. There's kind of four sections we're just going to review this morning. Firstly, just talk about the source of the promises. Then the certainty of the promises. And then we're going to look at the purpose of the promises. And then finally, we'll move on to start looking at some of the promises of God themselves. So let's kind of go through. Uh, first thing then is the source of the promises. And if we look in, again, this portion we've just been doing studying. Um, let me just read again. Simon Peter, a servant, apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Saviour Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, according as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue, whereby, so because of all of this, are given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the, that is in the world through love. So, the first thing, these are promises that are from God. Okay, And that's kind of an obvious point to state, but this isn't something that uh, the apostles themselves have just recorded for us, or their views or opinions. These promises the source of them is from God himself. Now, over the last three weeks, we've been looking at a little mini-series talking about love, and we talked about in the first session of that how much God loves us. The Father himself loves you. And it's just a breathtaking thing as you get your head around that. And, of course, that love that God has for us then engenders our love for God in return. And, of course, then we find that we can love each other. And it's the same God that loves us that has given us these promises. And that's the first thing we need to, to have in our mind. These promises are from God himself. The same God who does not change. We'll look at that in a moment. But they're exceedingly great and precious promises. These are things we need to hold on to. You know, if something is precious, if something is valuable, you protect it, you look after it. In the book of Hebrews, and we've been looking at this recently in our Bible study, uh, and this came out a week or two ago as we were going through, just picking up in chapter 6, verse 10, it says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. Now, understand the context that we're going to talk about these promises here. Because it says, God is not unrighteous. God won't forget the things that you've done for the kingdom. Your work and your labor of love, which you have shown towards his name. In other words, the things that you have done in God's name for his glory, God isn't going to forget those things. In that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Now, of course... Last week we were looking again at the whole subject of love and our love for each other and the way we should serve each other. The way love is demonstrated, Christ's love for the Father was demonstrated by his works, by his obedience. Our love for each other is also demonstrated by our willingness to serve one another. And so God is not going to forget those things. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews makes very clear. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. In other words, we've got to stay in this. We've got to hold on. That you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So at the point that the writer to the Hebrews is recording this, he's speaking of something that has already been given 
But then he says that we should effectively carry on in our walk with the Lord and this, this striving to serve God, to serve each other and so on, and that we be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience. So there's a, a huge element of the promises of God that is wrapped up in this whole idea of faith. is trusting God. It's believing in God. Believing that God is faithful to do what he said he would do. And as we see again, verse 10, we'll be reminded that God is not unrighteous. God won't forget the things that we've done. Again, through faith and patience, speaking of those who inherit the promises. Now, I believe the writer here is referring to believers, you and I. People that, in a sense, maybe have gone before us. Uh, and we think of, you know, Jared mentioned a moment ago, speaking of people like Spurgeon. But you've got Whitfield and Wesley and all these great men of the, the past. Um, and then you go back even further and you've got the, the apostles themselves. These individuals who have inherited the promise. Now, this is quite interesting because we start to see then where all this fits together. In Romans chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, we're told something very important. Now, Paul here speaking about his countrymen, about the Jews. And he makes it very clear. It's an incredible statement, actually, Paul says. He says, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What a statement that is that Paul makes. Effectively, he's saying, you know, I would be happy myself to be accursed, to be separated Christ from eternity, if I knew that that would bring my brethren, my kinsfolk, back to the Lord. Now, of course, Paul recognizes that that's something that won't happen, because he's been purchased by the blood of Christ, he's secure, he's safe. But he's got such a zeal and love for his countrymen, the Jews, that he was saying, I would do anything to see them saved. Now, God doesn't put us to shame a little bit, doesn't it? Because do we have that kind of zeal and love for the people in our country? Do we care that much about others? Or are we just so glad that we're kind of saved ourselves that, you know, well, I'm okay, but, you know, we look at the world effectively going to hell. And are we really that concerned about it? We could go off on tangents talking about that. But this goes on. And Paul says, who are Israelites? Um, to who pertain the adoption and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises. So we see that these promises, amongst those other things that are there, were given to Israel. Now that's a really important point to understand, because the source of these promises is from God, but these promises were made to Israel, specifically. And we'll look at more of this in just a moment. It's just important to understand that to Israel uh, were given, it's just pertaining the adoption what does that mean? Well, we go right back to the founding of the nation and we see how God called one man, Abraham, to leave a, an idol-worshipping world. And, by the way, Ur of the Chaldees, you go to the British Museum, you can see uh, the artifacts and the things they've made. This wasn't some backward society that was just um, living in kind of mud huts and tents and so on. You know, this was a city that was very advanced, you know, they even had, they found things like electric motors, um, which baffle people because, you know, of course, from an evolutionary perspective, people think that we started off thick and we gradually got better. It's actually the other way around. Uh, we've lost an awful lot, um, particularly in our relationship and understanding of God as the time has gone on. But we see 
to the Israelites who pertain the adoption that God adopted, brought them in effectively, starting with Abraham, and used Abraham and his family as the mechanism to bring the Messiah into the world. And the glory of the covenants that God made with them. And we'll talk a bit about those covenants next week, no doubt. We'll look at some of the promises specifically that were made to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And particularly, uh, we look in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the promises that were made to David. So the giving of the law and so on, the service of God and the promises. These were given to the nation of Israel. Romans 15 verse 8, we say, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. So once again, as we study this subject of the promises of God, we understand that the source of these promises is from God himself, that they were given to effectively the nation of Israel, and when Jesus comes, he doesn't come to do away with those promises, he comes to confirm those promises. Now, this flies very much in the face of modern theology. Most churches in this country will tell you that God has finished with Israel. That God has no plan or purpose for the nation. There are some that are very um, antagonistic towards the nation of Israel. They don't believe they should be in the land of Israel. Um, they think all oh, this is wrong and so on. And they are um, very quick to support the so-called Palestinians and, and uh, so on. In this very uh, heated political uh, situation that exists. But Jesus himself, we're told, confirms the promises that were made unto the fathers. That has to be in context the nation of Israel, the fathers of the nation. And so Jesus comes to confirm those promises. The promises, of course, though, we need to understand, were made to the lineage of the seed, which connotatively becomes Israel. Now, we go way back to Genesis, and we find in Genesis 3.15, a promise is made there of the seed of the woman, being the one who would come, who would be the deliverer, a kinsman of Adam, and so on. And we find then that Abraham is the protection, in a sense, that is put around this seed. Revelation chapter 12 is a very important um, passage in Scripture that explains to us that this seed, as it were, was clothed with the nation of Israel. Just as we put on clothing for protection, so the seed of the woman was clothed with the nation of Israel to protect So, in a sense, the promises were made even before Israel became Israel. But God, of course, knew his plan, his purpose, that he was going to call this individual Abraham, uh, and so on. So, connotatively, the promises then are seen as being given to Israel, even though many of the promises actually were given prior to Israel becoming a nation as they, they are known today. But the incredible thing is that the Gentiles, you and I, if you're not Jewish, have been grafted in. This is incredible. We've been grafted in to these promises that were made to the nation of Israel. See, the writer to the Hebrews talks of the great men and women of faith that were in the lineage of the seed. That's, of course, in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. And then we read this, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises. Stop the mouths of lions, and the passage goes on. So it's those people who were in the lineage of the seed, who were being spoken about in Hebrews chapter 11. It's those individuals who obtained these promises from God. And it's very much a dangled carrot, for want of a better expression. God was giving them promises of something that was yet to come. 
Now we may come back to this in a while, but it's just very much, I mean, you, if you're a parent, you've no doubt have done this kind of thing with your children. If you're good, I will give you X, well, you know, whatever it's going to be, chocolate button or, or whatever. Although Joy tends to get those before the children do. But the, the idea is that we have those kind of things that we offer as kind of a you know, dangled carrot. You do this and you'll get a reward. Well, God has done the same thing. Because he wants to have focus. He wants us to have something to aim for. Knowing that there is reward ahead. That the effort, the labour, the toil that we go through isn't just a, 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 a for now experience. But that there will be a reward for all of these things. As we looked at in the opening passage a moment ago from Peter. Back in verse 13 of Hebrews 11, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises. This is incredible, because they, they died knowing that there was something yet to come, but they themselves didn't become beneficiaries of the promises themselves. They died in faith, looking forward to what was coming. They kind of hung on to the end, knowing that it was worthwhile. Now that tells us, of course... That some of those promises, even for us, are yet to be experienced. But some of the promises we'll talk about are things that we experience right now. Things that they were aware of, that were given to them as promises, and yet we have become the beneficiaries of. So again, they died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them. I love that, that word. They were persuaded of them, absolutely convinced this wasn't just a, oh, it might be, wouldn't it be nice if? This is, they were absolutely convinced that these promises that have been given to them by God himself were rock solid. And embraced them. And confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. You see the effect of the promises? By understanding the promises that God has given that they were persuaded of. They knew they were rock solid because they'd come from God. They embraced them. They held on to them. It was that finishing line ahead. They knew that there was a moment, there was a point in time when they would become themselves beneficiaries of these promises in one form or another. They confessed, therefore, that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. You see, what our promises do is help us keep on keeping on. To run the race, as it were. And Paul talks about that in uh, 1 Corinthians. And, you know, the whole idea that we should run the race as if we're going to win the race. You know, I don't know if you've, if you've ever gone out for, for a jog and you've not had a particular... I, I speak from other people's experience, of course. Um, if you've ever gone out jogging somewhere and you, just, you get to that point and it's just like, if it's an aimless just, you know, jogging, then you get to the point and you give up. But if you know there's a particular point that you're aiming for, maybe a marker, and maybe you've, you've set a time before and you're trying to meet, you know, that gives you the momentum to keep going. And that's what these promises are for. There's, there's, a, there's something in the road ahead of us that we've got to look at, to, to wait for expectantly to get to that place. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 13, we read, Wherefore remember that you... You and I, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. So in other words, just drawing the contrast that, that you were Gentiles, you were outcasts. You know, I believe that the Jews used to say that the Gentiles were simply fuel for the fires of hell. That was the way they used to view the, uh, the Gentiles. But we who by the Jews were considered outcasts, we are the uncircumcision, they are the circumcision. Um, that at that time you were without Christ, 
That's how we were as Gentiles. Being aliens, look at this, from the commonwealth of Israel. And strangers from the covenants of promise. This is great. You know, that we were strangers from the covenants of promise. We were outside of these blessings, having no hope and without God in the world. That's how we were. Every single one of us in this room, if we're not a Jew, and as far as I'm aware, we have no Jews with us this morning, all of us were outside of God's blessings. You see, God has reserved the blessings for the people that he has called and has chosen, and then for those by his grace who have been grafted in. We were aliens, were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You know, we are members of the commonwealth. Of course, not the Queen's Commonwealth, the Commonwealth that we refer to in this country, but the Commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers from the covenants of promise. And uh, you know, it implies we didn't know anything about it, we have no concept of these things. It was distant from us. And this paints kind of a sad picture of how we were, having no hope and without God in the world. We carry on though. Verse 13 says, but now, I love that, that phrase, but now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off, once, there was once a time that you were far off, are made nigh. You're brought near by the blood of Christ. There was this kind of gulf between us, and yet the blood of Christ has brought us close. Now, therefore, verse 19, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. So we've become those that inherit with all the saints, yeah, fellow citizens with the saints, and in that context, by the way, a lot of people, every time they see saint, they think of either something that's very, very, uh, very verified uh, by the Catholic Church, um, or they don't particularly think of Jews, but so often in Scripture, the term saint replies to, applies to Jews. So, now therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. We've been brought in. By God's grace. And we're now those that inherit and benefit from these promises. So the first thing we need to understand, the source of the promises, it's from God. But these promises are given essentially to Israel. And we partake of them because we have been grafted in to this family that God has called. So let's just talk about the certainty of the promises themselves. 2 Corinthians 1, 20. We sang this earlier in their song. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. Uh, this is just a very simple statement, but it just talks about the certainty we have. You know, if God has said yes, then it's a yes. It's not like when we say yes and then we change our mind. If God says yes, then it is absolutely sure God doesn't change his mind. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in him, amen. Let it be so. That's how the promises of God are. Unto the glory of God by us. You see, God will receive glory because he's faithful, because he doesn't change. And back into Hebrews. Uh, we looked at this last time we studied. Uh, and this was, it was great. And Dave was bringing out for us the, the certainty of the promises. Let's just look at this from Hebrews 6 verse 13. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. 
wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, that's the unchangeableness of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things, this is the promise and the oath, this is something we talked about at Bible study, those two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, that we have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. So, a passage again that just speaks of the promise that God has given. And we can be so sure of these promises because God not only has given us the promise in the first place, but then confirmed it by an oath. So it's doubly secure. You know, we are familiar, of course, with the whole idea of making a promise and then uh, reneging on our, our promise. You know, And uh, that's kind of a very human thing to do. And sometimes we do it through weakness, sometimes it's a deliberate Deceit with people, they'll promise something knowing full well they don't intend to fulfill it. Not so with God. Because it's impossible for God to lie. And the fact that God has confirmed it by an oath as well. He's putting his name to this. He will not go back on the promises that he's given us. We can be absolutely certain of these things. So, the next thing, just to, to clarify... What is the purpose of the promises? Now, we've already touched on this a little, but there's a number of scriptures that help us to understand this. Just go back to this one in Hebrews 6.13 again. Wherefore, God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in that is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Now that's the first thing we see, because these promises are that which helps us to flee. As we've already said, it gives us something to aim at, something to aim for. And then verse 19 carries on and says, which hope we have as an anchor for the soul. What a statement. These promises that God has given become an anchor for the soul. You know, if you've ever seen a a ship drifting without an anchor, well, that's what your life is like without the promises of God. But we've been given these promises to be an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters into that within the veil. Speaking of this ultimate place of blessing. So again, we hope, as we have, also, which hope we have as an anchor for the soul. It's speaking again of these promises that God has given. It's an anchor for the soul. Stops us going astray. Something that will stop us drifting. They act, if you like, as a compass also to, to keep us from losing our way in life amidst the storms of life. And of course, there are many storms of life. You know, we were looking yesterday. In our study here with Precept Ministries, um, one of the sessions uh, we were looking at the book of uh, James and talking about the the trials uh, that we experience as Christians. And one of the things we just noted looking at that portion and studying in James chapter 1 was there's a multitude of different trials and things that we'll experience. But you know, these promises have been given to us by God so that whatever circumstance we go through, we don't need to be afraid of it, we don't need to worry about it, we just trust in God. We keep looking forward. You know, we can drift around. You know, it's a little bit like if you imagine a kind of a water skier. Running's holding onto that rope. He may go one way or the other way, but he's still going in that direction. He's still always going to be going towards, obviously, the, the, where the boat is. And that's you know, a poor example, maybe, but that's the idea of us. That wherever we drift, whatever happens in life, whatever things we're blown around by, we've got this anchor for the soul. We're always going to be going in the right direction. 
again, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, we looked at this earlier, that by these you, you, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Look at this. That by these promises that God has given us, we might be partakers of the divine nature. You see, the promises of God actually serve to make us more godly. That's another real key purpose of these promises. It's to transform us. Because we know we have this to aim at, it changes the way we live our lives. It's because we know there is an accountability that one day we will stand before the throne. That all of our work will be assessed. Of course, our sin has been paid for at Calvary. But our work will be judged. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, in 2 Corinthians um, I believe it's chapter 5 as well, we're told there. Um, that our, our work will be assessed and judged at the beam seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ. So again, these promises are there to help us living our lives for God's glory. It's really knowing that there is an expected end keeps us from running into evil or disobedience. There's a verse that often people quote speaking of Israel. In fact, people often misquote it and refer to it in relation to the church. And uh, I believe it's in Jeremiah. Just speaking of God, you know, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans of a future and a hope, and it goes on. Um, I do like the way the King James translates it because it doesn't say plans for a future and a hope because I just think that sounds a little bit wafty. What it says in the King James is, is an expected end. I think that's different because an expected end is something that is defined, it's very clear, there's no ambiguity. A future and a hope is just kind of like, what really does that mean? Is something we can maybe, you know, but an expected end. You see, that's what God has given to us. That's what these promises are. An expected end, something that we can be absolutely certain of. And God gave Israel, when they were in Babylon, promises of their return. In fact, even prior to their going to Babylon, so that they wouldn't drift. It's so that they wouldn't start to marry into the communities around them and so on. It's so that they would stay true to their God, knowing that there was an expected end, that God had a definite and predetermined plan for them as a people. And it stopped them wandering off. And of course there are other factors as well that helps in that regard. In fact, for two centuries, God has to some degree used the, the, the promises that were given to that nation as an anchor for them to stop them drifting and getting kind of absorbed by the world. Proverbs 29 verse 18 it's a great verse. In the ASV it says this, Where there is no vision, people cast off restraints. I like that particular translation of that verse because it says quite simply that if you've got nothing to aim for, you lose focus. And we've said that already. And this is, of course, what the promises do. You know, it's so easy. I think a point that I just made at the bottom there. You know, knowing that there is an expected end keeps us from running into evil or disobedience. And it's true because if you don't have a vision, if you have nothing up ahead of you, it's so easy to lose your focus and, you know, almost feel there is no accountability. You can do what you want. I've said before that uh, there were times when Katie and uh, myself, my sister and I were young, and mum and dad had been out somewhere or been away for a day or two. And, uh, you know, they came home. And, you know, the, the house would get to a, a state of uh, well, almost disrepair. But, you know, you get to the, the day before they're coming home and Katie and I would look at each other and it's like, I guess we'd better try and tidy up now. So we did. And, you know, there was a reason. Well, the promises of God are that for us because we know 
that there are things ahead of us. There are tangible things. We know the Lord is coming back. And of course, that is one of the great promises we have. We know that the Lord is going to come back for his people to take us to the place he's been preparing for us. You know, and it's those kind of things that give us this vision, this hope, something to aim for. Without that vision, we lose focus. You know, it's, it's true, but you're less likely to hit the mark if there's no target. It's, it's, a, it's a very simple point. That, you know, if you've got nothing to aim at, where are you going to go? This is what the promises in God's word are there for. Having therefore these promises, this is 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves for all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. What a great verse this is. Having therefore these promises, because we've got these promises, let us cleanse ourselves. Now, because we've got this focus, we have a real reason to live godly lives and flee from sin. You know, and again, as I said, it's kind of like, if you're good, you're going to get a treat. That's very much what God has done with us as children. That he's promised us things. These things, and we'll talk more about what some of those promises are. And the promises include, but are far more than simply salvation from God's wrath. But that, of course, is a promise that is given. That we are saved from the wrath of God. And we have assurance of that because God has put his Holy Spirit in our hearts. So, finally, let's start to look at the promises of God. Now, we're not going to get very far. We're just going to have a, just a look at, really, just uh, one of these, actually. But the first one. Before we do that, I just want to highlight, we've got two types of promises mentioned in Scripture. There's conditional promises and unconditional promises. Now, conditional promises are very much, we see God with Israel a number of times. If you do this, you will receive this. If you obey, you're going to receive blessing. It's a conditional promise. We've also got unconditional promises, and a number of those that are really totally independent of, of any act on the part of, part of the individual, that God makes a promise, such as we see in Genesis 15 with Abraham. God makes a promise to Abraham. In fact, he puts Abraham asleep while he's signing this agreement, effectively. Abraham wakes up and it's all a done deal. It's a promise that God would give Abraham the land of Israel and his descendants after him. Abraham has no part in that. It's, a, it's an agreement that God makes purely on God's basis and on himself alone. So we see those different types of uh, promises. Promise from a, a definition, Collins Dictionary defines it this way. It says, to give an assurance of something to someone. Um, or also to undertake to do something in the future. So these are the two kind of ideas behind what we're talking about when we refer to a promise. It's to give an assurance of something to someone, or to undertake to do something in the future. Now on that basis, let's just ask the question, what is the first promise in the Bible? Just think for a moment. Probably, a lot of us would start thinking, Genesis 3.15, the promise of the seed. And that's where I thought originally. And I thought, well, let's have a look. Let's go back to the text. Let's go through. And I was quite surprised. And I started to smile as I started to see something very wonderful. Genesis 2.17, the first promise of something that will happen to someone. Genesis 2.17 says, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. That's a promise. It's a promise that God gives that this act of disobedience in eating of the fruit of this tree would result in death. 
I thought this was quite incredible because without this, the scene would not be set for all that God was going to do. This is really just amazing. You see, on this promise hangs the character of God himself. You know, in essence, the first promise in the Bible is death. But rather than being something that's very negative and sad, we see God laying a foundation for life. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7, we read there, Kind of a a real paradox is is presented to us. Verse 6 says, And the Lord passed before him, speaking of Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now if it stopped there, we'd all be happy. But then it says, And that will by no means clear the guilty. Well, isn't that a contradiction? This is the dichotomy, if you like. It's the paradox we see through the Old Testament. How can God be just and merciful? And here this statement tells us that God is a merciful God. Merciful and gracious. But he's not going to let anybody get away with it. It's basically a paraphrase of what's being said. Psalm 32 verse 1 it says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Wonderful. And yet, we find he that justifies the wicked and he that condemns the just, even they both are abomination to the Lord. That's, that's uh, Proverbs 17, not uh, Psalm. That's Proverbs 17. Verse 15, I believe. Uh, he that justifies the wicked and he that condemns the just, they both are an abomination to the Lord. So on one hand, we've got God saying, or uh, the psalmist, I believe David recording here, blessed he, he is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. But then if God were to just cover over iniquity, then God himself says that would be an abomination. Of course, we understand the the full picture of this. Psalm 85, verse 10 says, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. It's speaking of this way that God has reconciled his divine justice with his mercy, with his gracious character. And of course, that all comes together in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus took upon himself the wrath of God so that God could then show us mercy. Because God's payment, the, the, the penalty for sin has been met, which then allows us to go free. As I said, the first promise then is the promise of death. And Revelation 13 verse 8 just speaks of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Even before God started creating the earth, it had been foreordained that Jesus, the Lamb of God, would die. See, God's first promise is death. And aren't you now glad that it is? Because the whole of God's plan depends upon death. Upon the fact that there would be a substitute, one who would be able to die in our place. You see, if God had just allowed us to live forever... We would then stay in that fallen state forever. That's why the way to the tree of life was guarded by these two mighty angelic beings. But God, through death, 
planned to bring us new life. The first promise is death. I think this is wonderful. And so and in First um, Corinthians Verse 15, picking up verse 54. So when this corruptible, talking about our earthly fleshly bodies and so on, have put on incorruption, speaking of the new bodies that we'll inherit, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to path saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? You see, God's first promise was death because he knew that through death he would be able to bring life. It says again, the sting of death is sin, but the strength of sin is the law. And Jesus came to free us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us, we're told. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the solution to this problem. But what an incredible promise. We find the first promise in the Bible is death. Death isn't something to fear. Death is something that has made it possible for you and I to have eternal life. I don't know about you, I just thought that was just, just wonderful as you see God's plan right from the very beginning. Just as a kind of, uh, just final thing here, just a, I just found this interesting. What was man's first promise? What was the first thing that man promises? Well, the first thing that is uttered by man is actually a promise. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. That's the first thing man utters and it's a promise. It's a a promise of commitment for the bride to be united to the bridegroom. And of course, in a mystical sense, in a spiritual sense, we see a much bigger picture because Paul makes it very clear that marriage isn't just about a husband and a wife and so on. Marriage is is a picture of Christ and the church. And the first utterance, the first promise that man makes, the first promise that God makes is death to make life possible. And the first promise that man makes is that we'll be united, the bride and the bridegroom. And you see right from the start, God's wonderful plan, even before you really move out of the first couple of chapters of the Bible. And these are the things that we start to hold on to, that start to give us an anchor for the soul, a real hope in this life, a real reason to live godly. Next week we're going to pick up from here and we'll start to look at some more of the promises of God. And we'll just be in awe at what God has done, his plan down through the ages and all that God has for us. And the reasons that these promises shouldn't just be distant things that we're aware of, but should be something that we're holding before us. You know the rabbis used to have these boxes you know, on their foreheads and so on, you know, and in them they'd have the Lord. It was always before them, wherever they went. Well, this is the idea here, that we have these promises of God forever before us, that it affects the way we walk, the way we live our lives. Let's bow our hearts. Father God, we thank you for the exceedingly great and precious promises in your word. Thank you. Lord, that that first promise is a promise of death. Because through death, you made a way for us to have new life. Lord, you knew that we were weak, that we would stumble, that we would fall. And Father, although it was Adam and Eve in the garden, Lord, it could be any one of us that were placed in that situation, we'd have done the same thing. And Lord, we recognize that the human heart is deceitful, it's corrupt. And so we needed to be born again. To have a new spirit placed within us. 
And we thank you but that, Lord, by your goodness and grace, you've filled us now with your Holy Spirit. You've brought us back to life. And, Lord, you've given us these promises that are to be an anchor for our soul. Lord, help us to really comprehend and understand these things. That it would help us to live our lives as a bride getting ready to meet her bridegroom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.